Hi everyone, welcome to episode four of Pod Culture Oz, an Australian pop culture podcast about genre fiction. We're very excited to be here with you. I'm your host, Philippa, and once again, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dave. Shall we play a game? And Nick. Let's play Global Thermonuclear War. This episode, we're also joined by our guest host, Tom, or Robots, from Robots Radio. Welcome, Tom. Welcome to Pod Culture Oz, Episode 4, MMOs for World Peace. We had such a great time recording this with our special guest, Tom, from Robots Radio. Uh, we kind of went over time when we were recording, like seriously over time. So we've divided the episode into multiple parts. This is part two of three. If you haven't checked out part one yet, you can find it on our website, podcultureoz.com. And episode three will be out soon. So enjoy. And now, on with the episode. So then after that is the era of the in-game jokes for gamers, which is like Knights of the Dinner Table webcomic, which is great. The Dead Owl Wives, you know, and the, you know, and Magic Missile, the Darkness, and Penny Arcade. So does anyone have any thoughts on that? I think these sorts of texts are instrumental in building a sense of community, yeah. like a sense of... Uh, what we might hesitate to call the gamer identity given previous comments on Gamergate, but but maybe this is where that comes from, you know, this sense of recognition on the internet, this kind of building of an enormous community of people who do have a common experience. So they're not looking at themselves like we were and going, I'm not the Stranger Things kids. They're looking at Penny Arcade and going, I played that game. I remember that stupid bit that I hated and they hated it too. You know, so I think that's, I think that's hugely important about those kind of in-jokes. Yeah, this connects very much with the... Uh uh, the popularity of the internet. Yeah, I was going to say and it's the, the rise ability of the internet. To, yeah, yeah, and the, the ability to find these micro communities. And it's interesting that this is before the mainstream period. This is still when it was niche, and we're kind of finding each other through Usenet, through forums, through oh, this mm-hmm. this really basic looking web point one page has a comic on it kind of stuff and you yeah. share it with someone through email it, it i mean it has to be right nobody we it, even though there were there were dozens of us um <laughs> <laughs> even even so they're like who nobody was going to make going to see us as a market so we were going to make ourselves uh our own art our own reflections on ourselves right this is often how marketing creeps in though. Yeah. it locates these communities once they've got the, oh, the sure cloud. and that's what happened yeah. um, but and now you've it got has Twitch, to start we Twitch to, and YouTube yeah. they, they kind of tw- uh, you know this not okay DT um, Penny Arcade this this turns into uh, ultimately what is now Twitch and YouTube for gamers although uh, one thing we didn't mention um, in, in the early period was the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon from the 80s and there was I think three seasons worth which I still find astonishing that it even got made they weren't I guess they were selling the Dungeons and Dragons players handbook but how did this happen I think in the 80s like the things were more accepting in the 80s right it wasn't until I guess the late 80s early 90s and and the D&D scare that it became a problem that it became I'm not not referring to that though Saturday morning cartoons were other than Scooby-Doo were Masters of the Universe Strawberry Shortcake it basically were products that were being sold 
to kids. They were advertisements. Yeah. yeah. They were advertisements to sell G.I. Joe figures and yeah, Transformers. Exactly. Yeah. So the fact that there's a wonderful world of Dungeons and Dragons cartoon astounds me because I don't know who made it or mm. why, because I don't think they were trying to necessarily sell like the D&D player's handbook to people. I just don't know who signed off on it because it's not a bad cartoon. I mean, it's not great, but it's there's you know, all your different character classes and every so often a tiny little gnome dungeon master steps up from behind a rock and gives them quests and then vanishes and you know stuff happens they they adventure but it, it's perplexing in retrospect to go how did this even get greenlit you know because I, I watched probably, it probably did lots of drugs yeah probably <laughs> probably there was there was more money in the 80s for that kind of thing Dr- um, drugs or day and day just just wild uh, you know but yeah it was it was just interesting that uh at a, at a time when uh, everything else was it was basically a half-hour marketing cartoon, as Tom said, this was be- this got made. Anyway, moving on. So we, we've got the 2000s, and this is when gaming culture became mainstream. We've got The Big Bang Theory, which is a terrible TV show, really, but it's... It is. It is. It is one of my most hated TV shows. It, yes. But from a, from a point of view... It's got gamer characters as the main characters, not as a sidekick or a joke. And yes, but but I, I would argue that they are still the brunt of the joke. They they are because Chuck Lorre, Chuck Lorre, whatever his name is, is just toxic masculinity yeah. personified. But it's interesting that it even got made, let alone went for fifteen years or however long it went for, because <laughs> ten years <laughs> earlier it wouldn't have been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it also, well, it, it's a reflection of society. It's everybody knows a Sheldon, Mm. right? Like everybody knows that guy who was so into his nerd thing that he was socially awkward. And so therefore let's make him a main character in a show. And now everybody can laugh at him. Yeah. That kind of thing. I do remember the episode where every single person turned up as the flash for Halloween. And then I had arguments as to who was going to get changed. That was, um, that was amusing. But, um, but yeah. I think the most exposure I've had to Big Bang Theory, other than the just constant ads for it, because it just keeps getting rerun on Australian television and on Netflix now. It was this great YouTube video I saw where they took the laugh track out and basically they're all psychos. Yeah. None of them are funny. Oh yeah, the laugh track. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 There's a whole thing now of doing that you take the laugh track out of things and it makes everyone look really scary yeah if you if yeah you want I, to- I pointed that out to my wife and i was like these shows are terrible because of the laugh track but if you take the laugh track out they're also still terrible yeah they're <laughs> worse. Possibly worse yeah, yeah. well well yeah. actually then then it becomes a, a great social commentary doesn't it mm. like yeah pop culture detective on youtube has uh, several great videos about how terrible the gender politics of Big Bang Theory are. Oh, it, it really is. And I'm not I'm not advocating for the show. I'm just saying that I'm interested that gamers were the main characters of a mainstream show. And mm-hmm. and you wouldn't have had that in an earlier period. On laugh tracks, I mean they're such a fantastically nineteen fifties idea. I think it was Chuck Pauliner who pointed out in one of his books that everyone you can hear on a laugh track is long dead. <laughs> so yeah. going back to another yeah. episode they're a bit like zombies which is super creepy yeah, yeah. really creepy <laughs> so uh, you you asked uh, early on in this episode you asked questions about like uh the meta per- perspective on these things and i would i would say that a show like buffy the vampire slayer in the late 90s early 2000s was probably from a meta perspective 
very much more video game influence than we would give it, uh, than is commonly seen because of its connection to uh, not only the monsters and things, which uh, of course those are movie tropes and those kinds of things, but many of that that world existed in role play games and was popularized through role play games. But then not only that, but the way that the stories unfold folded the way that there are some connections to similarities in the way, say, role playing games unfold with characters and uh, things going on in in the world. And on top of that, even in the last season, they're actually playing Dungeons and Dragons in the last season and and making a reference to the Homestar Runner net cartoon (laughs) and Strong Bad's drawing of Trogdor the Burninator. Like this this is a deep pull. But yeah, you can tell that the writers and the people behind those games were into obviously nerd culture, but very specifically video games as well I, and gaming. I think, I think part it, of what you're describing there is actually the, the, the kind of rapid assembly of the concept of pop culture. You know, yeah. because it, it, I, I still remember when people started talking about pop culture as if it was its own thing. I was like, what well, popular culture? So like everything. But but actually pop culture, when you knock the U-L-A-R off the end of the word and turn it into pop culture, that's part of, I think, what you're talking about, which is a kind of grab bag of tropes that that, that hold together role-playing, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, um, but a whole range of other things that, that are kind of very much cross text. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think, I think you've hit on something there. That's, that seems like a pretty, uh, influential moment. And also like that, I think also goes back to the final episode of that series high score, which is the, the, um, player versus player fighting game, street fighter and mortal Kombat. I think you can see the, or- those origins in some of the, the fight scenes of Buffy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they oh, were, yeah. they yeah. were mid to mid to late nineties games. And then Buffy was a late nineties TV show. So I think there's definitely, um, you can see the yeah. progression there. You just reminded me of this great scene in one of my favourite movies from the early 2000s, a French film called The Crimson Rivers, where it's starring Vincent Cassel, and uh, he plays a cop, and at one point he, he goes to... I don't know. It's it's French, so I guess he thinks he's about to ask a CI, like a, an informant, some questions, but actually it just means he beats up a drug dealer. And it's this crazily stylized <laughs> scene in which they were playing a fighting game in the background, and the music just keeps going. So you know, the guy said, you know, they kind of square up for the fight, and the guy goes, "Round one, fight!" And then they fight, and then you know, they stop for a bit, and he says, "You know, round one is over," or whatever. Like the, you know, and, and so the the kind of the music and the voiceover from the fight scene sets the whole fight scene up in the film, which is it, it's kind of remarkable. The, the the bleed actually between the two like the French cinema is so strange I love it is Crimson, <laughs> Crimson River is the one with the genetics and the DNA and the yeah, yeah yeah so that's a very weird movie oh, I love it so much um, <laughs> um, yeah so anyway other twentieth century stuff is you know Stranger Things we mentioned Sword Art Online I mentioned briefly which is you know people getting sucked into an MMO through nefarious means the first half which is it's set in a fantasy game is okay but that was what I was going to the comparison point was the people who are trapped in the game are so anti the people who are the beta testers because they feel that they're cheats I'm like I'm sorry I know beta testers from um, you know Lord of the Rings Online they just got some scented candles that give them a plus one bonus in darkness <laughs> they they didn't really get any like and and they got to but the play. advantage is the the thing that they complain about it is is that they know all the tricks right yeah, it doesn't but, matter what their level is yeah but they don't know all the tricks they really just got to play on one or two maps before the game launched <laughs> so the the whole anti beta test thing was just really weird and it's also cuz uh, the beta test thing came up in alternus because the guy who um Tandy subbed in for was the beta tester and 
because he was in it because he had like extra knowledge that the other team members didn't and because she was obviously the creator of the world, she replaced the beta tester. And I'm like, oh, there's this thing about beta testers. It's like recurring theme that that doesn't correlate with my experience of beta testers. Yeah, it sounds like to me this this the Nicolas Cage moment for me (laughs) in in Alternus is like page two. I feel like you've got to pronounce it, not the Nicolas Cage moment, but the Nicolas Cage, like it's a cage that traps your attention. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So you can otherwise walk past it and it's like, oh no, I fell into a Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Oh no. That, that could also, that's going to be my new uh, item for Dungeons and Dragons. My new magic item is going to be called the Nicholas Cage. I'm, I'm going to reveal that this week. Awesome. <laughs> the Nicholas Cage. And yeah, and so, and then other work is like, you know, indie work, which is by and for players. So like Gold, the TV series, The Guild, Critical Role, Order of the Stick. And then, of course, we get to esports, which builds on from that Madden uh, football game, which I'd forgotten about. So I think there's also a way to flip this a little bit. And, and think not so much about about the ways in which people in games reflect, represent or bleed into the real world, but actually the way games themselves bleed into texts and a kind of lineage of texts. And I'm thinking, while we're talking about this, I'm thinking about uh, if I can just take a moment to kind of stretch a, a sort of short history from the early 1990s through to this year, there's a set of texts and so novels and films specifically that kind of end up creating games in the real world using kind of tropes of games. And they often have kind of brutal and awful results. So I'm thinking uh, the Ben Elton novel Popcorn from 1993 and the film Natural Born Killers from 1994, which actually have the same plot, which is people break into a TV studio and then basically say, if you don't turn your TVs off, I'll kill this person live on air. And of course the ratings go through the roof and someone gets murdered live on air. It's not much of a spoiler, statute of limitations limitations at all. Um, I'm thinking Battle Royale from 2000 where a bunch of, uh, you know, my recollection of this film is very dim, so I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I I think it was a bunch of Japanese school children who wind up on an island and have to fight to the death. There's a great film, a kind of indie film from 2007 called Live with an exclamation mark, which um, this young up-and-coming reality TV producer decides that the the next big thing is going to be to play Russian roulette live on TV with an actual loaded gun. Um, and, and because there's six chambers in the revolver, there's six people, uh, and every week one of them dies and, and, and it's, it's, it's so full on and I won't spoil the ending cause it's pretty great. Um, but it's another one where this kind of sense of like, you know, video or kind of game games and TV, you know, kind of, and, and, and the kind of cheapness of life kind of there. Um, then there's two from very recently that are, are kind of about, uh, I guess we call it augmented reality. So kind of worlds in which people have a smartphone app that tells them to do things that are gamified, but the things that they're told ultimately end up to be murder. So um, one of them is Nerve starring Emma Roberts and then Guns Akimbo. So Nerve is 2016, Guns Akimbo is 2020. And it uh, it's hilarious. If you haven't seen it, watch it. it. It's exactly as dumb as it thinks it is and it revels in it. And it's got Daniel Radcliffe who wakes up one day after having having kind of insulted a bunch of guys on the internet, he wakes up with these guns kind of surgically welded to his hands and he's told to, to go and hunt Samara Weaving, who's the current winner of the, I don't know, underground murder scene. And so it, it's sort of this this sense of like the game uh, kind of protruding into the real world with very real consequences, which I think might be 
related to what your question at the start was, Flip, about um, about kind of the meta of gaming, but it's it feels to me like the direction's reversed. It's not it's not people in game coming out into the real world. It's the game itself intruding into the real world. I don't know how that fits, but it's just a thought that's been bubbling away. Yeah, and um, some of those you described remind me of Series 7, um, the movie Series 7, which is about uh, reality TV where you have to murder people and be the sole survivor. Reality TV has come a long way, and I'm sure that The Hunger Games – you know, it's only just a couple of, <laughs> a couple of years away. away. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, there, there are already those, um, I mean, Survivor is one of them, I guess. But uh, yeah, I mean, Survivor is basically the Hunger, Hunger Games, but for money. <laughs> yeah. Dave, you had some thoughts on indie yeah. stuff. Uh, so like, I think obviously for us, the, the indie work is important because it's an extension of that stuff that we're talking about with Penny Arcade and Nights at the Dinner Table. But it's for us. Again, it's for us by us. Like in terms of going mainstream, I don't see it. Uh, see these works really as as mainstream works. I don't know if if that's a particularly poignant observation, but I don't like most people haven't read Order of the Stick, haven't watched Gold the series, um, which I I, I kickstarted. I think it was like my first or second Kickstarter back in the day when that's when crowdsourcing was really uh, was not yet popular. And I know that the Guild and Critical Role series entered the mainstream. Um, I guess with certainly with uh, Critical Role, it's a bit later in the in the piece, so it's more recent. And, and geek culture is uh, is much more mainstream by the time Critical Role comes on. I I sort of want to ask, as I mentioned at the top, that I don't think about representation and the meta narrative around game gamers in uh, depictions of gamers very much what do we what do gamers get out of this like why do we get excited like do we do i don't know any sports fans but do sports fans squee when they watch a game about baseball look i think this comes back to what's referred to as the mirrors and windows theory by rudine sims bishop and for those who don't know it it's originally talking about children's literature, but I think it can be applied wider. I've certainly seen it applied to adult fiction of different forms. And in fiction, a mirror allows us to see a reflection of who we are or aspects of ourselves within a character. And a window allows us to look inside and see a world or a culture we may not have experienced before. So for us as gamers, seeing um, a reflection of gaming or a game, someone who is a gamer in, in mainstream culture particularly those of us who grew up not seeing it a lot, um, that can be a big deal because, you know, as we said earlier, representation matters, whether it's, you know, seeing someone play a game, just a a board game or a a tabletop role-playing session or something when it's not very common or whether it's the the guy who put black players into Madden football because, you know, that's a representation of the real world. It matters. Sports fans get to see their sport at school and on TV on, and on weekends in real life. So it may not be such a big deal for them because it's ubiquitous. But for us, we were the ones in the library and underrepresented for a long time. So the fact that it, we're seeing ourselves and, and our, our hobbies now, I think it is a big deal. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was the only female role player in my high school for six years. It wasn't until I got to university that I met another female who role played. And it was a huge moment. I was like, oh, my goodness, there's another one. And there was, in fact, three others in a club of 40 people. And that just meant that I had a, another friend 
and two other friends, you know, I could actually like have some company that was not male and my male gaming friends are great and I'm still in contact with a lot of them, but it was just nice to have another female role-playing friend. And it was, you know, it, it made a difference to me, just a little difference, but it made a difference. Anyway, that's my thought on, on that question, Dave. Anyway, what do you think, Tom? I think this, uh, this all comes down to human psychology. <laughs> let's, let's get even deeper. Um, <laughs> there's, we're all looking for validation. We're all looking for confirmation, affirmation, validation that we are, that we are good. There's some sort of thing that happens at a very, very deep level psychologically in mammals. I would, I would, I would estimate by even just looking at the way dogs are, you know, like, I don't know how many of you guys have dogs, but you know, if I just look at my dogs and I say in a very positive voice, good, good boy, good boy, you did good. They don't know what they did, but they're very excited that I'm giving them praise and that I'm validating that they're doing a good thing. And we as human beings from a very, you know, from, from the instance of birth are looking for validation externally. Internally that is telling us that we fundamentally are doing a good job, that we deserve to be existing, that, that the world around us thinks we should be here and that we are contributing to it. <laughs> right. Deep, deep down, and I think that, just the gif of Nicholas, uh, sorry, not Nicholas Cage. I've got him in my head now. Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio pointing at the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's, and anytime we see that uh, reflecting us in, you know, in the, the, in the media that we're watching, the games that we're playing, anytime that we are seeing affirmation, um, and, and this is one of the, I mean, this connects to all sorts of other things. And this is why it's so dangerous on social media sites like Facebook to have echo chambers is because we're seeing in the reflection of our opinions telling us in others saying that, no, you are in fact right and your perception of the world is this and your beliefs are accurate. Anytime we get affirmation about any of those things, it creates a positive feedback loop, which creates... Uh, probably something like a dopamine rush or something like that in our brains and we feel good. I think that's ultimately what this comes down to. And I wonder, going back to the mirrors and, and windows thing and that kind of moment of deep recognition that you get a positive feeling about, like the, the mirror is the recognition, right? You yeah. see yourself in the mirror and you go, that's me. I'm pointing at the screen. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy. But I wonder if a text is simultaneously a mirror for you and a window for others. Yes. If, if, you know, the quote unquote Nicolas Cage is when you see the window and you go, that's not me. So it happens in the same text, right? You see the mirror, <laughs> you see yourself in the mirror and go, that's great. And then you see something else and you don't immediately make the connection that that's for other people. That's not for me. And that can cause that real schism, I think, when you watch these, these bits of text. And I guess... For some people, it is a schism. For me, I'm always fascinated by Windows, and I and I really want to know more, and that's why I don't. I, I've deliberately not cultivated an echo chamber because I want to know about other people. I want to know right. what they do, and it may not necessarily be something that I want a hobby. I want to take up myself, but I'm interested in diverse opinions. That's why I did like a triple major degree in in you know polit socio political history. You know because th that's how you find out stuff about people and things. But it can be super weird when you know, you're looking in the mirror and there's a window over there and you look through the window and then suddenly you realise what you're looking at isn't a window or a mirror, but it's actually a feed of a camera pointed through your own window and you can see yourself, right? Yeah, suddenly or, or like, like a, a mirror inside another window. Yeah. That sounds like a game and, of Portal and, and I was never any good. <laughs> Narrative well, Portal. I, I think that this is fundamentally interesting, especially it's it's why I'm guessing that you've in, learned to enjoy, and, and myself as well, looking through these windows is that oftentimes when we look through, when we read a book from somebody from a culture that is different from ours, or we see the representation of someone who looks different than us, the, the initial response is, oh, that's not me. But when you come to actually learn more about them, you start to realize that 
yes, it is you in these other smaller, more nuanced ways. There are these smaller windows inside there that are in fact reflecting us because human beings are human beings. Yeah. And that's getting back to an earlier episode of ours on the Omega point. We talked a lot about the show Sensate and I love Sensate because it was about eight completely different people in different cultures around the world, but they had a lot of things in common as well. And you got to see and explore that through that show, the differences, but also the similarities. And that's one of the things I found so fascinating about that show. People at, at their core, there's a lot of similarities between people, even though they're very different. Yeah. Yeah. We're more, we're more similar than we are different. It's just those differences that stand out initially because those are the things that are grabbing at our attention. Yeah. Yeah. To go on to what's been mentioned, critical role, it's been hitting the headlines lately, which has been referred to as the Mercer effect or the critical role effect. So for those not familiar, critical role is a live play game of Dungeons and Dragons by professional actors. It has a huge following online and it's on YouTube and it's inspired a lot of people to take up Dungeons and Dragons. However, a lot of first timers try it, then end up rage critting after one session because their DM isn't as good as Matthew Mercer, the game master, and doesn't do all the character voices or or have 3D terrain maps. I think we need to be careful about creating realistic expectations for new people getting involved in gaming. We aren't all professional actors. We just want to do our best and everyone wants to have fun. I also think it's really harsh to blame Matt Mercer for this. So if we refer to anything other than as realistic expectations, I think it should be called the critical role effect. Tom, I think you mentioned having some thoughts on this. Yeah, I think that this is, um, it's very similar to like, hey, you should try out playing a sport with us. And then, you know, like, hey, let's play some hockey. And then all of a sudden you're upset that you're not as good as Wayne Gretzky. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, or your team isn't as coordinated as a, as, you know, a, a you know, professional team God, and they're not, it's, it's exactly what's yeah. happened to us with Overwatch. We're like, we're great. No, we're not. <laughs> right, right. And, and that can happen in sports. That can happen in, you know, competitive games. That can happen in anything. Um, I, I think that this just comes down to human beings just being a little bit more self-aware and, and, and aware of, uh, you know, the world around us. Like, uh, you know, you can't expect to do something on the level of a professional person or to be, you know, uh, to, to join a band and all of a sudden, yeah, we're as good as the Foo Fighters. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> like they've been playing music for a very long time and they know what they're doing, you're going to have to work at that. And the people that you're working with are going to have to work at that to get there. I, I think it comes down to self-awareness. It also comes down to, uh, you know, your own expectations for things. There's also something very important and unusual at this moment in history about the size of the market. You know, there, there was a time when the only role players you'd know would be the role players that you role played with. And maybe if you went to cons in another city, you'd meet some others and you'd see what else was possible. But now we've got like every single person in the world can now watch critical role, right? Yeah. And so so the market's suddenly much, much larger. Um, and I think you see this you, you, you see this in the kind of the, the ever-increasing ability of sports people to, to continue the metaphor, you know, the, the, the sports people now uh, run faster, jump higher, have faster reflexes be, uh, because the population that they're being drawn for, from is larger. So there's a higher chance that they'll differ from the mean by a larger margin. But also, in, you know, an example close to close to home is is uh, Australian Football League where AFL where we now have a whole bunch of um, Irish people coming over to play AFL because it's a lot like Gaelic football. Um, so 
So, <laughs> and, and in fact, the the Collingwood Magpies have a forward whose name is Mason Cox, who is six foot ten, I think, and he's American, Jesus. and he used to play basketball. And so he's kind of in this kind of wonderful way seems a little bit bemused by this insane sport that Australians play, but he loves it, and he's on an enormous contract. Can he jump high helps. enough? Uh, oh, at six oh, yes, ten, you know, so. <laughs> six yeah. ten basketball player. It's, yeah. yeah, at six ten, he doesn't have to jump high enough, no, but um, he has this habit of taking massive pack marks in really at really key moments of really important games which is kind of exciting. But, uh, you know, the thing is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Mason Cox doesn't play AFL and he stays in the United States and I don't think he becomes a, a, a famous basketballer in that alternate timeline that where we suddenly don't have the internet. But I think to kind of continue on the historical thread here, you get, you know, nights at the dinner table and Penny Arcade and it starts to build this sense of, of who we are. Um, and so suddenly, suddenly you've got this enormous community of gamers. One of the positives of that is we can find each other. One of the negatives of that is it raises our expectations because it, in some regards, professionalizes gaming. So you've got your Overwatch teams who you can see do amazing things with reflexes that none of us will ever possess. And then you see these kind of brilliant GMs who are fantastic impro improvisational actors and have the kind of resources to put into 3D terrain and, and you know, can also produce a great YouTube show, right? So it, it, it skews expectations, I think. And I've actually experienced this kind of firsthand um, when – at my old job, a bunch of people found out I was into into role playing, and they'd all seen Stranger Things. And one of them had bought the new D and D <laughs> box, and they were like, "Can you run it? Can you run it? Can you run it?" And I sort of had to say to them, uh, "It's not going to be what you think." Like, I don't really like D and D, and I don't play it very often, and I'll do my best, but it's you know, it's not. There's no demogorgon, and we're not going to go through a portal to the upside down and actually save the world here. Like, <laughs> like I'll probably get bored and stop doing the voices and start just describing things instead. And you know, I won't roll very many dice, and there's no not going to be any magic missiles cast at the darkness. Um, and look, I, I think we had fun, but the campaign dead ended. Like, you know, we probably got three sessions in, and then it kind of died down. And I think it is. I think there's a lot there about big differences between the gamers we see on screen and and the quote unquote real gamers because we all have foibles and habits. And well, that actually leads me into my next question for you, which is, and you've partly answered it already, but <laughs> you ran a long-term freeform campaign, which is a type of LARP for our international listeners. And, you know, what were you, your experiences in that, you know, and expectations? Yeah, it was um, <laughs> very silly. Um, so for sci-fi futuristic. Yeah, so it was called A Colder War. And the reason it was called A Colder War is because I thought it would be really funny if you had the Cold War in space. Um, so we started from the premise that the Cold War had continued, the Soviet Union hadn't collapsed and had somehow lasted for 300 years, which given what I know now is... Probably that's the Nicolas Cage of this whole thing, right? <laughs> is that, is that the USSR didn't collapse in a heap in 1992 or 1989 or at any point in those between those two dates. So, uh, yeah, it started out. The idea behind that was to run a series of freeforms with kind of emergent storylines so we wouldn't write the whole thing. We'd wait to see what happened in the first one to write the second one. And then we'd kind of have people playing the same characters over and over again uh, and kind of invite them. We had a Wikipedia actually, or, you know, or a wiki. It's not really a Wikipedia. But we asked people to add to the world and, like, players, long-term players would produce content. And it was all kind of great. Like, it was super, super interactive and really good for me because I'm a lazy DM and I don't really like doing all that setting stuff. So it was great to have everyone else do it for me. Yeah, uh, look, <laughs> that we ran seven of them in the end over, I want to say, three years, um, maybe three and a half years. And they got larger and larger and more and more complicated. And, and we tended to do these kind of high concept nonsense things that never quite played out. I remember one where I gave someone a backpack with my laptop in it and they had a webcam stuck to the shoulder of the backpack strap. 
and there was a set of players who were in another room and couldn't interact with anyone except through this webcam and this laptop on a, you know, so it was, it, it had these kind of AR elements to it and some of them worked, some of them didn't. You know, I'm thinking, spoilers, 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 I'm never going to run this again. <laughs> like, like, and no if you did, to, it wouldn't be the same. No, and it no. wouldn't work. In fact, I did run the first one a second time yeah. at a different con and it didn't play out anywhere near as well as the first time I'd run it. But anyway, that's by the by. I um, only played the last, I think, one or two sessions. I was playing an insane AI or something. I that sounds, remember. yeah. And it was written by one of your co-designers and I don't think you realised how insane he'd written it because every single line was in a different font. Yeah. And <laughs> was that Matt? Yeah. Yep. And, and I turned up with like a Joker-esque lipstick smile on my face and you said, that's great. I'm like, you haven't read my character sheet, have you? And you went, uh, I guess not. I'm no. Like, no. Yeah. I think by, by that point there were six GMs and 30 players and, and it was just- That's a good ratio, actually. It was a good ratio. That's one of the things we discovered was that if you don't have a computer to crunch the numbers for you, you need a lot of people. And especially if you're- if the game that you're producing has a lot of qualitative storytelling rather than just, although this one had both, you do actually need a GM for every five players and the GMs have to confer and run back and forward and, yeah. It's like when when Luke and Grant ran their Traveller game and it ended up being Traveller the Economy. Oh, and God, and everyone would queue up. They'd queue, oh. <laughs> queue up and do their eco- eco- economic stuff. And Grant was like, yeah, I don't want to run I, this ever again. I, that was just anecdote. about expectations because they thought they were running a Traveller game and everyone just wanted to sit down and barter. What's this about testing your systems before you bring them out? <laughs> and... Uh, they basically had to have a dedicated GM to do economy stuff. <laughs> I'm trying to think about this in terms of the kind of broader, the kind of broader question about the matter of gaming. And I mean, cause you know, a free form in an Australian role playing convention is a pretty niche product. Um, God, we need more of them. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, nevertheless, if I think about what I was drawing on to write a Cold War, I mean, ironically enough, after I'd called it a Cold War, we discovered that that the American author Charles Stross had already written a short story called A Cold War, in which it was Space Cthulhu rather than you know, and it was a kind of Cold War <laughs> around occult space stuff or something. I, I never read it. Um, I didn't want to kind of cross contaminate. Um, but then you know, the uh, James S. A. Corey, the two people who make him up, ended up writing something that 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 was very like in narrative terms was very similar to what I was writing yeah. Um, yeah, in, in, in the expanse. In the expanse so, yeah. so what, what I find kind of interesting, I guess about this is, is the, is the question of convergent evolution, the way that the way that ideas just kind of emerge out of this enormous subcultural mind that we've built over the last 30 or 40 years. And the internet has really supercharged. And a lot of the, the James S.A. Corey stuff is out of their own role playing game. Yeah. And I, I often kick myself for not having written this into a book. Not that I think I'm that great a fiction writer, but you know, in terms of timing, the timing was right. You know, people yeah. loved that game. They were super in, engaged in it and uh, it built a really good player base. But I think it's interesting thinking about this in terms of technology. Like as a technology, a freeform is labour intensive, hard to automate, which is what we've just been discussing, right? How many mechanical systems you produce for a freeform or for a LARP that uh, that can't be crunched quickly by human minds on the go in live action time. So there, in terms of in terms of reach, this is almost the exact opposite of critical role. Like we had to keep the player numbers very low because the labour behind each player was enormous. But know. critical role has a small number of players. Yeah, yeah it so does. Just a they huge just have audience. Have a huge audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you could have recorded all your oh. Cold War sessions and put them on YouTube. Except and I'm not into- sure you can with five GMs and thirty players and huge numbers of narrative going on. I mean, you, you basically you have need to have- a crew of 20. Yeah. To exactly. Yeah. You, you, you double the number of people in the room to film it. And Freeform's are notoriously boring to look at. They're a lot of fun to play in. Actually, all our cons are really boring. We've had media attend and I've tried to take photographs. To- it's hard to do. Yeah. Because no. it's entirely imaginative. <laughs> Tom, yeah. do you go to gaming conventions at all? I've spent some time at them, but I haven't traveled a ton for it. 
uh, we're, we're con organizers in Sydney, so uh, as well as game designers for conventions. So uh, they're, they're not as big as American conventions in general. They might get 200 or 250 people. It, they're quite labor intensive, but a lot of fun. But it's also um, the games can be quite experimental. And so, Dave, you, I know you've run games at home as well as conventions. Yep. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I had notes about um, how when I when I skimmed a few episodes of Critical Role, I didn't see anything out of the ordinary. But if you're skimming, you probably don't see the 3D maps and stuff. Yeah. Um, look, I, th- I think I, I guess we've been playing a very long time, so our home games tend to be relatively high production, but we lose focus no matter how great the session someone's fallen asleep there's arguments over the freaking drinks um someone's on their phone yeah someone's on their phone or on the internet i'm honestly i haven't run in a while but i'm gonna have to have an an, a no devices policy including for myself it's just so easy to get distracted and i reckon by the time something is shown on critical role all that crap is pulled out yeah which is you know good for good for entertainment and bad for representing <laughs> representing the game as it really is. Yeah. And look, I run, it's been a couple of years, but I do run Call of Cthulhu, which is set in the 1920s and 30s, and I run Cthulhu Invictus, which is set in Rome. Rome and I don't do 3D terrain maps, but I have maps of the cities, San Francisco or Rome, and I, I have character portraits of the characters I provide for players, and I do a range of um, voices for all my NPCs, including different hand mannerisms and facial mannerisms for everything. Like I do the full range of things and I have a lot of people tell me how much they enjoy the games that I run, but they are very specific games that I write. Yeah. And it's a one session game that might run for three or four hours. That, and I run that game for that also, 10 times yeah. over a weekend. Like it's not, it's not a full campaign on YouTube, you know? But so also that's, that's still a lot more effort than many people put in. And it mo- is. And, and it's more effort than I think a fledgling GM uh, is, is like understands that you have to go. It's also oddly more effort than a fledgling player could take advantage of, yeah. and, which might be part of the reason for the critical role effect. And, and look, I get, and it, I'm drawing on my theatre background when I do that mm. and I enjoy it. I love playing well, all those characters. Critical role is populated by actors. So there's a thing that there's a concept here that I came across a little while ago. I can't remember if I've mentioned it in one of the previous episodes. There's a, a kind of crackpot critical theorist from the early 1980s called Ivan Illich, who's having a bit of a moment in the sun because he writes a lot about education and, and healthcare and, and people are kind of grabbing what he's said and running with it at the moment. But in his 1981 book, uh, shadow work, one of the essays deals with something that he calls the vernacular, vernacular values. So he takes the metaphor of a grammar, like like a written grammar of a language, to talk about the concept of institutionalization. And what he says is- he said grandma for a second. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, second. Gr- yeah. the perspective of a grandmother. A grandma, that's right. A, th- a theoretical grandma. Yeah. So he, what, he, what he basically says is that is that institutions standardize and standardization tends to kind of produce- uh, a kind of market relation so that the, the more standardized things become, uh, the more rules a game system has and the more those rules are required to play, the more likely they are to produce something like Critical Role because everybody can learn it, everybody can get in on it, but actually it does produce some people that are just better than than others. Whereas at the other end of this is this notion of the vernacular. So the examples he gives of the vernacular is he says, don't buy a CD, play the guitar. You know, don't get takeaway, cook your own food. And, and there's some very quick examples that tell you what the whole point of the vernacular is, is, but part of what he's getting at is that there are some types of knowledge that are learned outside of institutions or arrived at kind of individually by a range of people at once. And that we sort of should, we should find a way to, to celebrate the vernacular. And, and I think what we're coming 
up against here is a distinction between a grammar and a vernacular language of role-playing. Um, there's another guy called Tim Wu, who I think, I want to say he wrote The Attention Merchants, but he has this great article on, the, on I want to say, The New York Times, where he's, it, it's, something, it's titled something like In Defense of the Mediocre. Basically what he says is, have hobbies, be crap at what you do, because actually it's quite important to have those spaces that aren't governed by this external standard of of. Of, of the grammar, you know, the, the Illich grammar. Can I just give an example? My very first role-playing convention, I was at university at this point in time and I joined the role-playing club and I met some female gamers and I knew of role-playing conventions prior to this time, but I had not felt I, none of the guys I was at high school with ever wanted to go, like they were happy with their home group and I had never felt comfortable going on my own. So it was only once I got to university that they said, oh, well, we'll go as a uni team. And I think they put three or four teams in from my university that year. And so I, I went with people I knew. And I hadn't known them for very long, about two months at that point. And, and uh, they were nice people. And I did role play with them occasionally during our years at uni, but they're not my core gaming group. But it was just nice to have people I knew. And the first two sessions of that convention were a D&D game unlike any I had ever experienced. It was second ed because third ed wasn't out and it was called Guard Room 27 and it is legendary in <laughs> Sydney gaming circles. Um, we were the goblins numbered one to five <laughs> and we sat at a wandering monster table <laughs> in a tavern which had rumours scroll across it because it was the rumour table until we were called into a fight <laughs> and and the players would attack us and then they'd leave and then the walls would collapse and we'd be on a grid map and then we'd peel off our latex wounds and then we'd go back to the tavern and sit at the rumour table and and then we had, there was actually a, a meta mystery outside of the game but we kept intersecting with the, the players in inverted commas throughout the game. But we were in, um, I can't remember what the name Dungeon City or something, and but we could see um, Cyberpunk City, which was like tall buildings with mirrored windows, and and then there was the Asylum, which with screams, and it was dark and misty because that's where the Cthulhu NPCs lived. And <laughs> this it, is cut price Westworld. Oh uh, yeah, pretty, pretty much. And and but it was soundtracked perfectly, um, every scene. And I'm just like, this is a totally different world. Like I feel like I've put I'm with the performing arts people now, not the hack and slash D and D players I'd been with for six years. And it was a completely different world and it was amazing and I would love to be a gem of that caliber and I'm not because I could never soundtrack um it, we, we uh, the role master players I knew would call it soundtrack ways true level 50 but um and that's that's a role master joke for the role master players out there and, all, all two of them <laughs> excuse me there's, there's dozens of us <laughs> a role master classic but uh yeah it, it was it was such a different experience it was just I just felt I'd entered a different world as a player and it gave me something to aspire to as a game master and I could see that some people might find it kind of weird or intimidating especially for a D&D game because the blurb just said oh you know you're the you're the wandering monsters blah 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 like it didn't in any way indicate the cinematic experience that I was I won't say subjected to because that's kind of negative but I but I was opened up to and I can see that some people might find it intimidating but having experienced that I then went off to play like a, a you know a, a run-of-the-mill cyberpunk game and then I played um, an interesting but not memorable Cthulhu game you know whatever like to start a, a, a four-day gaming convention with that was just mind-blowing and nothing no other D&D convention game has ever lived up to that but isn't it isn't it important and I'm not maybe but isn't the worst 
first word I should be using. And isn't it important that we have these things from the perspective of it creates at least a target for us to try to achieve, whether it's this experience you're describing or the Mercer effect or any, you know, the the top you know, sports players out there, the perspective of like, oh, we'll we'll never be that is very defeatist. But, you know, I think personally, it's better to turn that around and say, yes, but at least now I have a target. I agree. This is what's possible, right? This is what's possible. Yeah. And And every time I get closer, even incrementally closer to that target, I feel good. I feel like, oh, that felt a lot more like the thing I want to do. I fully agree, but I can, I can see why some people might give up because there are people who who go, oh, it's too hard or I didn't get there first time. So I'll just do something else. And that's not not me. Yeah, as a parent, I think that that's a lesson that we need to teach our children uh, by giving them the experiences of failure. Because, uh, and I think that this is a, this, I mean, again, human psychology thing. I think that this is a very important thing that we need to learn as humans in order to be successful in the world is how to how to respond to failure. It's something that I, um, from a young age, acclimate. I was in the gifted program. I learn very quickly, uh, and I probably have a higher than average percentage chance of succeeding at something the first time I try it than many other of my fellow students did. So my experience of failure or just right out like falling on my face in front of the world was way lower than a lot of the other kids that I grew up with. So when I got into my young adulthood period, I was more timid to try things because I was afraid of that failure. Because the more I didn't fail, the more I was afraid of what would happen if I did. And it took me well into my 20s to get to the place where I learned to, and maybe failure is never something you enjoy, but uh, I, I learned to uh, not be as afraid, uh, uh, to cope with it, and to then take the lessons of failure in order to turn that around. And, and I look back at my life and I, and, and I realized that like, had I taken those lessons earlier, I would have been a lot further along in a lot of the things I really do care about being good at. I think that's but really I was I was too afraid. Yeah, that's really important. There's also something great about, you know, you can look at these sort of top level examples and and rather than say I'll never be that or even I could get there with work what you can often do is find small chunks of practice Mm. that you just want to incorporate into your own play for other reasons. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to, you don't have yeah. to be as good as them. You don't even have to do what they're doing. You just have to be able to go, that works. That little tiny bit will work where I can put it in my own game. Yeah. <laughs> and an example of this is, and, and looping, uh, looping back to the question of failure, um, an example of this is is the, the fail forward notion that's kind of spreading through a number of story game systems now. You know, you shouldn't roll unless, you shouldn't roll the dice unless the decision matters or the outcome matters. And a failure should produce as much positive story movement as a success. This, this kind of notion, I've seen it spread through my gaming circles and I, I don't want to toot my own horn here. I was running Burning Wheel and I was making it very clear that that's how the game was meant to work. And it worked so well, not for me, and I didn't, it's not that I made it good. It just worked so well for the group that people in that group who GM their own games have now incorporated it into their games. And I think you see this a lot with more contemporary modular systems that do allow for that kind of hot swapping of bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of practice that you can get from watching really top flight GMs do their do their stuff. Yeah, is you can go that little tiny bit that works. I can I can pull that across into my game, plug it in, and off you go. Like yeah. for example, with soundtracking, you maybe you don't do a per PC mm. theme track because oh my god, you'd just be swapping C. Well, mm. not swapping CDs anymore. <laughs> swapping CDs. <laughs> um, but like, like if, if, as a GM, it really requires you to be on top of what's going on and 
you know, be at least, but you can say, look, we're, I'm just going to have a one, one ambient track on loop to help just keep the mood going. And, um, yeah. And, and I, I use music in my home games, but soundtracking down to the second and anticipating player decisions at a convention game to that level was just mind blowing. And suggests a lot of playtesting. Yeah. That's it for part two of our mega podcast on gaming. What do you think of the windows and mirrors theory effect in gaming? What's your favourite window moment while playing or watching a game? We also discuss player expectations. Have you experienced the critical role effect either as a player or as a game master in your own group? How did you resolve any issues relating to this in your gaming group? You can find show notes for this episode on our website, podcultureoz.com. And you can share your thoughts about the episode on Twitter at podculture underscore Oz. Once again, a huge thanks to Tom from the Fallout Lawcast and Robots Radio for joining us. We've loved having him as our first official collab. You can check out where to find him in the show notes. And don't miss part three of this episode, which is on gaming professionals, out next week. Catch you then.